Today is Father's Day, and by some sense of very twisted logic, I've been bombarded by emails from some of you ladies who believe that there should be a Father's Day tradition somewhat in the same light as our Mother's Day recognition. While making no such promises as to the future, I will share the following with you that I thought were somewhat amusing. The definition of outdoor barbecuing for it is the only type of cooking a real man will do. When a man volunteers to do such cooking, the following chain of events is put into motion. Number one, the woman goes to the store. Number two, the woman fixes the salad, vegetables, and dessert. Number three, the woman prepares the meat for cooking, places it on a tray along with the necessary cooking utensils, takes it to the man who is lounging beside the grill drinking a soda. Number four, the man places the meat on the grill. <laughs> Number five, the woman goes inside to set the table and check the vegetables. Number six, the woman comes out to tell the man, hey, the meat is burning. <laughs> Number seven, the man takes the meat off the grill and hands it to the woman. <laughs> Number nine, the woman prepares the plates and brings them to the table. After eating, the woman clears the table, does the dishes. Number 10, the man asks the woman how she enjoyed her night off. <laughs> and upon seeing her annoyed reaction, concludes that there's just no pleasing some women. Very nice. All right, ladies. The top 10 reasons Eve was created. Number 10, God was worried Adam would frequently become lost in the garden, and because of that, he would not ask for directions. Number 9, God knew one day Adam would require someone to locate and hand him the remote. Number 8, God knew Adam would never go out and buy himself a new fig leaf when his wore out, and would therefore need Eve to buy him a new one. Number 7, God knew Adam would never be able to make a doctor's, dentist, or haircut appointment for himself. Number six, God knew Adam would never remember which, which night to put the garbage out to the curb. The top ten reasons Eve was created. Number five, God knew if the world was to be populated, men would never to be able to handle the pain and discomfort of childbearing. Number four, as the keeper of the garden, Adam would never remember where he left his tools. Number three, apparently Adam needed someone to blame his troubles on when God caught him hiding in the garden. Number two, as the Bible says, it's not good for man to be alone. And the number one, top reason, God created Eve. When God finished the creation of Adam, he stepped back, scratched his head and said, Hey, I can do better than that. <laughs> oh, am I kissing up to him or what? Oh, my goodness. I have sunk so low. Gentlemen, forgive me. While, that, while there are some men who may resemble such a remark, there are also those men who shine in the darkness. And today in our ongoing study of the book of Acts, we will once again examine what I will call the qualities of a godly man. What an appropriate topic for Father's Day. The qualities of a godly man. As we turn to Acts chapters 6 and 7, we'll notice that uh, these two chapters focus on the ministry and the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen is a spirit-filled believer who ultimately was crowned by the Lord. In Revelation 2.10, we, we find these words, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Stephen was faithful in life and death and therefore is a great example for all of us, particularly men, to follow in his footsteps, in his example. In fact, in, in the Greek, the word Stephanos is a Greek word for crown. It's a victor's crown. And it's one that is earned and not one that we receive by inheritance. And Stephen or Stephanos is a man who exemplified what it meant to live a life that was faithful until death and to receive the crown of life given to him by his Lord himself. We are about to embark on a truly miraculous journey. For in one sitting, we shall cover two chapters in their entirety. <laughs> you are here on a record breaking historical moment in time. I want you to absorb it and to soak it in. And if we go any longer with that, I will never get through the two chapters. So here we go. First we're introduced, we'll take a look at him and we'll go with it in this manner. Number one, we're going to take a look at Stephen as the servant of God. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we were first introduced to Stephen as we read these words. Now at this time... While the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose in part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the point of faith. I cannot emphasize this quality enough. The first biblical description that we have of Stephen is that he is a servant. In fact, the word that is used is diakonos. It's found a couple of different times, one in the noun, one in the verb form. And it's found in chapter 6, verse 1, where it talks about the serving of food or the ministration of tables. And the verb diakonio, which is also used in verse 2, talks about in order to serve tables. The word in this passage simply and profoundly means that Stephen was a servant. A servant. You know, let that soak in for a second, gentlemen, that Stephen was a servant. He was a man who was first and foremost a servant of Jesus Christ. And as a servant of Christ, he then could not help but become a servant to his fellow men. He was sold out in love with Jesus. And because of that, he wanted to be just like him. As we think about this, I want to share with you an observation. Take it for what it's worth. But for the past 20 years, I've had the uh, privilege and also the challenge to uh, teach and to speak before men's groups in various settings, whether it's a chapel setting or a Bible study or a men's group or some men's retreat or something of that nature. And... Uh, I've been exposed to men of all ages and all different walks of life. And I've come to a conclusion, and I want to share that with you, and like I said, take it for what it's worth. I have come to the conclusion that, for the most part, men are selfish. Men are selfish. And uh, should you 
debate that or want to argue that. I want you to think for a second about this truth that comes to us from Scripture. The single most heated argument among the disciples was which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. And I want to share with you that if we are to become godly men, we must first and foremost become servants. Matthew, Mark, chapter 10, we're introduced to this particular problem of selfishness. It's revealed starting with verse 35. And we read these words, And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That is not a good start. You know what I'm saying? But that is the heart of man. Man comes to God and says, we want you to do for us what it is that we want. That's not good. That's not a good start. And it certainly isn't the path to servanthood. See, as he goes through, he says, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And I like this because Jesus at that point could have said, (laughs) who do you guys think you are? But he didn't. He was going to teach as he always did. The word of God is profitable for teaching and reproof and rebuke and correction and training. And so he said, what is it that you want me to do? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the other ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And the reason is that because they took an inside track and went direct to ask for the favor because they had gone on on a continual basis. In fact, turn back to Mark chapter 9 and verse 33 through 35. They had continually debated and argued heatedly as to which one of them that would be given these positions of privilege and honor. It says, and they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Jesus had heard them discussing and debating and reasoning and arguing and taking delight in that particular debate as to who would be the greatest. And he said to them, what was it exactly that you were discussing? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed which one, which one another, which of them, what, among themselves, which of them would be the greatest. See, Jesus knew what it was they were debating and asked them to say it. You know, have you ever noticed how sometimes you think certain things, but when you say them out loud, they really sound stupid? Have you ever been there? It's like, whoa, did I say... It's kind of like that, did I say that out loud? It's like, oh, man. Uh, You know, we think all kind of stupid things, but it only becomes, you know, real to everybody else when it comes out our mouth. And so, you know, therefore, they were like, well, you know what? This is going to sound really stupid if we say to Jesus, well, we were arguing about which of us was the greatest. That kind of sounds dumb. So they were at least intelligent enough at this point not to say anything. It says, and sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them... If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. 
in Luke 22, 24, they continually debated about it. In fact, the words that are used there said they took delight in it, they enjoyed it, and it's fine. It, it, to me, it's, it's a, a perfect example in Scripture of trash talking. They were talking trash with each other way before it was ever titled Talking Trash. I mean, they were going at each other, and they enjoyed it. They took delight in it. And if you go back to Mark chapter 10, Jesus continues the lesson that he wanted to teach them as to the whole idea of servanthood. He says in verse 42, And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. He's saying, you know the way the world is. You get in a position of power and responsibility, and man, you can't wait to start barking orders at people. You can't wait to, you know, attain that level of of, uh, power and superiority over others so that you can tell them now what to do. Francis Schaeffer said it best. He said, you know, in the heart of man, even after we become Christians, that isn't taken from us immediately. Because we can't wait. You know, you walk into your boss's desk when he's on vacation. You sit in his desk. You put your feet up in his desk. And you pick up the phone and you start to pretend that maybe you're him. And you start barking orders to people. And you say, do this, they're going to do it. And you say, jump, they'll say, how high? Man, that's the heart of man. You know, we want that power. We want control. We want authority. We want to tell other people what it is that they should be doing. But God help us if someone tries to tell us what it is that we should do. See, he went on and says, you know, but here, big butt again. But this isn't the way it's supposed to be among you. That's the way it is in the world. Hey, that's the way it is. But it shouldn't be this way among you. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And here's the kicker. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God's goal for all of his children is to conform us into the image of Christ so that we will become more like Jesus. A couple of weeks ago when we went into greater detail in this chapter, a few of you ladies were offended when I stated the obvious. And if you go back to Acts chapter 6, I'll point it out to you. And the obvious from the text is that God said to choose seven men. And the reason for it was that's what he said to do. That's as simple as it gets. And in this in no way, shape, or form is disparaging towards women. Uh, As I mentioned, many women are given recognition and honor throughout Scripture at a time where women were relegated to second-class citizens. So Jesus Christ elevated women to be fellow heirs of Jesus. And so it's not a disparaging remark in any way towards women. But the point cannot be missed, and that is that God has called men to be servant leaders. That point cannot be missed. Men who love the Lord and put His will and His word first, who consider others more important than themselves, who have a humble spirit, the Bible says, have this attitude in yourself which also existed in Christ Jesus, speaking of humility, who love their wife as Christ loved the church, giving of himself sacrificially, who are compassionate compassionate and sensitive, who have a good reputation among people, who are full of the spirit, wisdom, faith, and grace, men who are like Jesus. My question, ladies, is this. 
which of you wouldn't want to follow such a man? There's a Filipino proverb that goes like this. The taller the bamboo grows, the lower it bends in the wind. If you want to be great, sir, in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant of all. And that serving spirit begins with your wife and with your children and with your immediate household. It begins with a heart that's sold out to Jesus Christ and has come to faith in Him and in Him alone for the forgiveness of sin. And it extends to those that God places in our life, first and foremost, our wife and our children. And then extends beyond that to the family of God and to the world as a whole. If we're going to be like Jesus, we must be servants because Jesus came to serve and to give. So must we. My challenge for you is this. I dare you to ask your wife if you are a selfish man. I dare you to ask your children if you are a selfish man. I dare you to go to work and ask your boss or your co-workers if you are selfish in any way. And then I want you to be open and teachable to listen to what they say. And I, I uttered this challenge at a baseball chapel not long ago. And I said, now listen, I know how we are. And if you're going to go ask your wife if you're selfish, don't do it like this. You know, at chapel today, Chuck was saying, I should come home and ask you if I'm selfish. I'm not selfish, am I? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm not selfish. I, I'm not selfish, am I? No, I'm not. Oh, well, now, you know, if you're going to approach it like that, there's a good chance she's going to go, No. Now, but if you're open and teachable and say, hey, you know what, I want to be more like Jesus in my life and I'm convicted about it and I want to be open and teachable and you know what, is there an area of my life that you have found me to be really selfish? And how can I be less selfish in serving you? Wow. One guy out of 13 went home and asked his wife. And I know why the rest didn't. No, it's not because they're chicken. It's because they're selfish. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, and, and she said, you know, hey, you were very selfish. But I've noticed that you're becoming less and less selfish. And it's no coincidence that he's one of the few guys that loves the Lord and is diligently growing in his faith. The man is open and teachable. I love that. And he's willing to listen. And he's willing to learn. And if she says that you are, don't try to talk her out of it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, I think you are mistaken. Let me explain myself to you. <laughs> don't try to talk her out of it. Hey, live it out of her. Live it. Stephen was a man who recognized there's only one God and he wasn't him. The emphasis on Stephen's life is one of fullness. Man, the guy lived a full life. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He was full of faith. He was full of power. He was full of grace. And Scripture, to be full of it, means to be controlled by. In our culture, too many men are full of themselves. 
and a whole bunch of other stuff. But they're not full of faith and power and grace and the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They're not controlled by the Spirit of God. Stephen, on the other hand, was a God-controlled man who yielded to the Holy Spirit, a man who sought to lead people to Christ, which is how we're introduced to him in the next section as a witness. A godly man is a servant first and foremost, and then he's also a witness. Look at verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This spirit-filled man wasn't limited to serving tables or helping widows. He was also vocal about his faith and determined to win others to Jesus Christ. The key word that I find in verse 10 is that he was speaking truth. He was speaking truth. He was a man of courage who both spoke and lived out his faith. And anything less than that, you will not experience the fullness of the Christian life. Anything less than that, you will not experience the fullness of living a life dedicated to serving Christ. Speaking and living. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. He goes on to say it's with the heart that man believes, resulting in righteousness, but with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The reason that so many of us do not live Christ-filled lives or we are not good witnesses to the world around us is that all too often those who are vocal about their faith disqualify what they're saying by the hypocrisy of their life and their behavior. They say one thing about how, how important it is to be forgiven by God, to recognize sin in their life, to repent from sin and turn to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and all of that is true. But the message is lost in the confusion of a life that is not living out what we say is important that we believe. The hypocrisy of such a life does not draw people to faith in Jesus Christ. If anything, it continues to say, hey, there we go, just another hypocrite. Saying that he or she is trusted in Jesus Christ, believes in him for the forgiveness of sin, believes that they are to live a life that's pleasing to him, to live a life that he determines that we should live by the plan of God, and yet they just dis disobey him in every area of their life. Now, on the other side of it is, those who live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, having first come to faith in Christ, living a life that's worthy of the manner in which we've been called, which is a wonderful thing, but they never open their mouth to give glory to Jesus Christ for the change that He's made in their hearts, thereby taking all the glory themselves for this good life that they now live. Jesus Christ is to get all the glory and all the praise. In our hockey conference that we spoke at last week in upstate New York, one of the first things that I thought we needed to do because of the type of group that we had, the eclectic group, there were those who had never been to a Bible study, those who had never been to church, those who had never heard the gospel. There were those who had become Christians recently and others who had been for a much longer period of time. And I thought it was important to be able to share our testimony, what it is that Jesus Christ had done in our lives. 
by allowing people to see a, a, a glimpse or just a, a snapshot of who we were before we came to faith in Christ and who we are today so that they could identify with the fact that, you know what, I, you know, and as most Christians or new believers begin to believe erroneously, it's like, well, but you've always been like this. You know, they walk into a room and they see this guy's the speaker, or this guy's the teacher, or this guy's the pastor, this guy's the preacher, and they look and they assume, well, you've always been this way. Oh, no, you got that way wrong. And let me just share a little bit about how wrong you are. But it wasn't until February 16, 1978, when I recognized I was guilty, as God said, of sin in my life and I needed forgiveness, that I turned from sin and turned to God and threw myself upon His mercy believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again to demonstrate His power to forgive sin and to give eternal life. And when I believed in my heart that God raised Him from the dead and trusted in Him as my Savior, the Bible says I was born again in a moment in time. The historic moment when a person comes to faith in Christ. And the beautiful thing about it is throughout the weekend, everyone that had stood up to share, who had been asked ahead of time to share, quote, their testimony, would go back to the reality of there was a definite defining moment in my life where I understood that I was a sinner that I was guilty as charged by God, that I needed forgiveness, that I trusted in Christ as the only way that God has given to man to be forgiven of sin. When I invited Him into my life, and my life has never been the same since, the definitive defining moment in time when a sinner turns to Christ for forgiveness and becomes no longer a sinner, but a child of God. How important that is that we speak that with our mouth because no one would understand otherwise. They make assumptions that are erroneous. That somehow we were always this way. If there's not that defining, defining moment in your life, we're going to talk about that in a second as we look at the history of the nation of Israel and their confusion as to their relationship with God that didn't exist, that they thought existed, that Stephen will confront them with. But the reality of it is, is that Stephen had a certain countenance. As you look at verse 15, the council looked upon him and his face was glowing like that of an angel. That when a believer is living a life pleasing to God and then professing with his lips that which Christ has done in their life, when our lips and our life are in sync, then there is something attractive about the child of God that draws people to want to know how they can have the same thing. Over and over again throughout the weekend, those who would come up or those that would share, they mentioned one thing more than anything else that attracted them to the Christians on their team or the Christians in their organization or the Christian who was their trainer, who was their coach, who was whatever. That one thing that attracted them more than anything else, and you know what it was? They had a peace about them that I didn't understand. And I say the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. They had a peace in their life in the middle of circumstances that were driving everybody else crazy. They had peace. As if they knew God was in control. What a wonderful truth that is. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus came, peace on earth, among men in whom he is well pleased. Peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peace in our own hearts because we've got our relationship with God once and for eternity resolved. And peace with man, the Bible says, starts with peace with God. 
Be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It starts with our vertical relationship with God as we come to, to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then we begin to extend that peace to our fellow man. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And as far as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. There's something about being a peacemaker that is unique only to the child of God. You know, as we look at this, this countenance was there. They stood out. He stood out in the world. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 for a second. Man, he stood out in a world that was dark. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 16. We read these words as Paul writes through the inspiration of the Spirit. So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Is that beautiful or what? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light. You are light. As we were driving in one of the breaks that we had in one of our seminars, Linda and I took a drive. We were about an hour from the border of Vermont. And we drove across the, the bridge that leads into Vermont. And there was a big lighthouse that was there on Lake Champlain. Just a beautiful thing, man. It's a beautiful sight. And the wind was blowing. And I could just imagine you know, how brutal it would be to be out on that lake in a storm. And as I saw that light, and you see this pillar of stability... That light as it shines in the darkness is, is helping that, that boater know that, hey, you know what, I want to warn you of the danger of crashing against the rocks, crashing and burning. But I also want to point to you the safety of the harbor. And I thought, what a beautiful description of a Christian in a dark world. One who is there with stability because of our faith in Christ and the foundation that's Jesus and Him alone. But in the darkness, in a world that is brutal and hostile and destructive, to be able to warn of the danger and also the reality of the judgment that's coming of God. The world has been condemned already, John chapter 3, 16 through 18. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it because the world is already condemned. As Adam sinned, so sin entered into the world and the world is condemned by that sin and we're all guilty by association. And the Bible says that we as believers are like a lighthouse in the dark world warning people of the judgment that's coming of God for sin in their individual life and collectively for all of humanity. And more importantly than just warning of sin, but also pointing a light to the safety and the harbor of faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for forgiveness and eternal life. What a wonderful thing that is that we've been entrusted to be able to share that with a world that is on the verge of crashing and burning against the rocks. We appear as lights in such a world. And Stephen, the countenance on his face, the glow in that room was a light that attracted them. And it's either going to do one of two things. Attract people to know or repel them from the light because their, their deeds are evil, Jesus said. They love the darkness rather than light because they loved sin and hated God. We've seen Stephen as a servant. We've seen him as a witness. And now in this particular section, the longest, one of the longest and most important addresses in the book of Acts, we will see Stephen being used by God to judge the nation of Israel. 
And rather than look at it in one big lump sum, we'll take a look at it in sections because in this passage, Stephen does three things. If you turn back to Acts chapter 7, he does three things. Number one, he recites the history of Israel and also the contributions that were made by their most revered leaders. In other words, he identifies himself with them and begins on some common ground so that he hopes that they'll listen to what he has to say. Secondly, he'll refute the indictments that are against him by revealing their own national sin. It's a beautiful address. Uh, It's one of the examples of how a believer is to defend the faith, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. It's a ready defense of the faith. And he proved from the scriptures, their own scriptures, that the Jewish nation was guilty of worse sins than those they had accused him of committing. As we go through it, what were the sins? Number one, they had misunderstood their own spiritual roots. In verses 1 through 8, it says the high priest said, Hey, are these things so? What's being said about you? Are these really true? He said to them, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans, settled on Haran, and from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you're now living. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Notice the first thing he said is, hey, God went to Abraham, and God called Abraham out from among all the nations of the world. What he was trying to get across to them is a very simple truth that all of us need to understand, and that's this that it's by grace through faith that we're saved and, that of our, and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so no one can boast. The evidence throughout the history of the nation of Israel was this, that God in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, and by his choice reached out into humanity and called a man by the name of Abraham. Out of all humanity he called him and said, I will make you a great nation. He called him... And Abraham responded in faith. See, what they had misunderstood, and they had continued to for generations, was to believe that somehow they were special because they were related to Abraham. John the Baptist warned them. Jesus also warned them that it's not by our uh, genealogy by which we're saved. It wasn't by the fact that Abraham was circumcised that he was saved. It wasn't because he had the law that he was saved. Because if you recall in our study of the book of Romans, all of those things came well after God had called Abraham. They came downstream. God chose him. Abraham responded in faith. What he was trying to get across to them is the same thing that we need to understand today, and that's this. Misunderstood. How to enter into a relationship with God. They believed that because Abraham was their father that they were in. Listen to me. God doesn't have any grandchildren. None. No, not one. None. If your mom or dad has come to faith in Christ, then praise God for that, but you ain't in because of the decision that they made in their life. If your aunt, your uncle, your grandma, your grandpa, whoever it is in your family has come to a point where they recognize they're sinners, they responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, they believed in Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of sin, that ain't getting you anywhere. Now, it may have left a legacy for you to follow, and it may have created a thirst by the salt in their life, for you to turn to Jesus. It may have been a light for you to turn to the Word of God for truth, but the reality is this. Until you 
are humble and broken before God and recognize and confess your sin before God and turn from sin and turn to God and then you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died in your place, that God rose him from the dead, until you believe that, you are not a child of God. For as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he has given the privilege to be called children of God. The nation of Israel did not understand because they had a unique relationship with Abraham. They did not understand that they personally, as individuals and collectively as a nation, had to turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. They misunderstood their heritage. Number two, they also rejected those who were sent by God to deliver them. In verses 9 through 36, we see that they rejected those whom God had sent. First of all, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, and he goes through their history to show them these truths, and sold him into Egypt, and yet God was with him, and he rescued him from all his afflictions, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his households. Now famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit... Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's families. They were disclosed to Pharaoh. Notice this. He takes the history of Joseph and, listen to this, and beautifully takes the history of Moses in verse 20 and begins to recap the history of Joseph and Moses. And the one thing that those two men had in common was this. God sent them to deliver the nation of Israel and the first time that they went, they were rejected by them wholeheartedly. God sent Joseph and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to be great among all of you. And his brother said, no, you ain't. And he took him and they sold him into slavery. And said, we are not going to submit to you in our life. Moses comes on the scene. God chooses him as a deliverer of the nation. Sends him to the people and Moses says, hey, you know what? I've been sent by God to deliver you. And they said, who do you think you are? We're not following you either. Forty years passed before God sent Moses back again. This time the nation accepted him. Here we see in verse 13, on the second visit, Joseph's brothers, as they go to Egypt, then accept him and his leadership in their life. Listen to this. This is beautiful. What he's saying to them is this. Look, just as you rejected your father's reject of Joseph the first time, they rejected Moses the first time, they accepted Joseph the second time, They accepted Moses the second time, so you have rejected Jesus the first time, but there will be a day coming where you will accept him the second time. Is that beautiful? That is awesome. You rejected him, you rejected him, you accepted him, you rejected Jesus, but there is a day coming because the prophet Zechariah said, you will look upon him whom you have pierced, and you will mourn, and you will accept him as your Messiah. He used the word of God. And the Spirit of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword was out there working in these people's hearts. He said, you rejected Him, but there will be a day coming where you will accept Him. But you individually can receive Him today. Beautiful. They also accused Him of disobeying the laws. And He just said, you're accusing me of disobeying the law of God? Notice in verse 37. It says, this is Moses, the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our father and he received the living oracles to pass on to you. 
And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Notice what he's saying. God, in his love for the nation of Israel, handed them the laws of God that would keep them from becoming just like all the other unbelievers on the face of the earth. God in His love for His people has given us the Word of God so that we can know the difference between right and wrong. We can not only enter into a relationship with God through faith in Christ because He reveals it in His law, but He also gives us a guideline or a road, a pathway, a map to live our life. The Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It gives us everything that we need to live a life that's pleasing to God so we don't become like everybody else in the world who is in opposition to the things of God. That's why we're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. How is our mind renewed? By knowing the Word of God. We know the difference between right or wrong. God's people, when we choose to disobey, it's only because we are choosing in rebellion, not doing it in ignorance. We know the difference between right or wrong, and sometimes we just choose to do wrong. And God says that in our hearts we're disobedient to God, but what He's saying to the nation is this. God handed the nation of Israel His holy laws of how to live a life that was pleasing to God, a tutor that would lead them to faith in Christ, everything that they needed, the, the, the map was there to follow. And before he even came down off of Sinai, they made a golden calf, and their hearts were turned far from God. So here's, here's a, you know, Stephen in the midst of these religious folks saying to them, you're accusing me of not obeying the laws of God, when you know what? You're just as dirty as can be. Our people have, from the beginning of the time when God gave us the law, turned our hearts and our backs on God. We've been dirty, disobedient, corrupt people from the very beginning. And that's what the Word of God is to teach us and to show us. The Word of God is a tutor. The laws of God is a tutor or teacher to show that you and I are guilty before God. None of us are perfect. None of us are righteous. We've all sinned. We've all gone astray. We all need to cry out for mercy and forgiveness. I don't care how good you think you are on your best day, you're still going to hell when you die. Unless you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Period. Plain and simple. They disobeyed the very laws of God that they were accusing Him of disobeying. Not only that, they despised the temple that was built says they despised the temple in verses 44 through 50. He goes through the history of that. He's saying, man, you know what? You talk about me despising the temple. Let's just look at the history of our people. From the very beginning, we despised the temple. We began to worship to false gods in the very temple of God and the Shekinah glory of God departed from the temple because we were a corrupt people. Jesus topped it all off when he quoted from the Old Testament and said, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You people are dirty and corrupt. And, he was, and they were trying to accuse Stephen of that. He said, hey, don't look too far. But it wasn't very long ago when Jesus overturned the money changers in the temple saying that we have turned his father's house into a den of thieves. The last thing was that they stubbornly resisted their God and his truth. Verses 51 through 53 is a beautiful argument. It comes to the application you men are stiff-hearted, stiff-necked, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. 
you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you didn't keep it. Notice that. He was a judge. He was used by God to judge the sins of men. And he did it in a way that was pleasing to God by using truth. He spoke the truth to them in love. He reasoned with them logically and truthfully from the scriptures why it was that they were guilty before God and why they, as he, needed to come to faith in Christ and in him alone. See, as long as we use the word of God to bring about truth to people around us, we never have to be apologetic. We need to speak the truth and do so in love. A godly person will be a servant. A godly person, as we look through all of these things and as we go through it, not only will a godly person be a servant, but a godly man will be a witness of Jesus Christ and the things of God in his life. A godly person will be used by God to judge the world by using the word of God of sin in their life for the purpose of bringing that person to repentance. And the last thing as we look at this and ultimately that led to it was because he was a godly man, he also was willing to die for his convictions. He was a man that was willing to put his life on the line for what he believed. We need more men like that. Men that won't sell out for the immediate pleasures of this world. We think about how often we see men who claim to stand on principle, who will immediately sell out to some special interest group to get something that they want that's of temporary value. Jim Elliott, the Christian missionary, said he is no fool who gives up that which he can never hold to obtain that which he could never lose. What a wonderful truth that is. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to obtain that which he can never lose. Stephen understood that and paved the way and laid a foundation. And in closing, I want to give you a contrast between godless men and a godly man. Number one, they were filled with anger and Stephen was filled with the Spirit of God. They were controlled by their hatred. They were controlled by their rage. Literally, the truth of God's word, uh, you know, as we look at this, they, they were cut to the quick. Notice that in verse 54. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. That means that they were just, a sword was taken and just cut them in two. And we know what that sword is, the living word of God. The, the word of God that's a sword, living and active. Man, just penetrated that person's heart. Penetrated their hearts and just cut them in half sawed them off at the knees, so to speak. And they were filled with anger because of that. It exposed them for the hypocrites that they were. Who do you think you are accusing me of the very same things that you are guilty of? And the Word of God exposed them for the hypocrites that they were. And instead of being broken and humble by truth, they were filled with rage and anger. Have you ever had that reaction in your life? Have you ever spoke the truth to someone and hoped that that truth would break them and bring about a humility that they could repent of their sin and turn to God for forgiveness only to find them filled with anger and hatred towards you, the one who brought the message? If you haven't, you haven't lived. It's beautiful. You talk about living a full life. Oh, man, when I walk into places, I got people like, that gnashing of teeth, man. It's like, you know, if looks could kill, I'm a dead man. But if we're committed to Christ, and if we love people, these same people that hate me for confronting them with truth, I still got to love them and continue to confront them as God allows. Speak the truth in love. 
because they don't know how bad it's going to be. You know, the Bible is filled with men and women who are confronted with truth and were never broken. Never. Pharaoh, the hard heart of Pharaoh, who was confronted by miraculous truth after miraculous truth and signs and wonders and man, it was unbelievable display of God's power. And he refused to submit his heart to God. The Bible says he hardened his heart to the point where then God just sealed it over so he had no further chance. His heart was hardened by God. And I hear people go, oh, but that's not fair. What? What are you, just stupid? Why isn't that fair? And who are you to decide what fair is anyway? He was confronted by truth over and over again, and he hated God so much that God said, fine, then we don't have to ever worry about spending any time together. It's like God not dragging anybody to heaven. People were so ignorant. People would say, well, everybody dies, they're going to heaven. Why? You wanted nothing to do with God in life? Why would you want to spend eternity with Him? But the option isn't what you think it is. You ain't partying with your friends in hell. Ain't no drinking, smoking, listening to country western music. Although that for many would be hell, wouldn't it? Think about it. I was like, we were eating in the restaurant back east, man. That's what it reminded me of. I was like, man, I couldn't see my food. You know, I like this California no smoking in restaurants. That's a good thing. But, uh, but the point is, as we get sidetracked, the point is, is that, you know what, the hard heart of man is going to be, you know, the bottom line is this, hell will be filled with people who absolutely hate and are enraged by God. We get this mistaken belief that hell is going to be filled with people who are broken about what they just missed out on. And the reality is going to be they are going to be filled with anger and hatred toward God. The same anger and hatred they had during their life, they will continue to have into the next life. The only problem is that there's no hope. There's no hope. Period. That's how the eternity will be spent. In Hebrews 3, the Bible says this, you know what? Don't let your heart be hardened today because today is the day of the Spirit. If God is convicting your heart today, of sin, then you repent of your sin today and you turn to Christ today for the forgiveness of your sin because the Bible says today is the day of the Lord. Don't you dare put it off. I hear people say, you know what, well, you know, 11th hour deathbed and then I'm going to turn to Christ. How ignorant that we would presume upon God that we'll have 11th hour deathbed experience. He could take you out now like that. You could walk out in the parking lot and get hit by a car like that. You can have a brain aneurysm, as Rex Hedler found out, just like that. And you know what? Who are we to presume upon the grace of God today if he's calling you from amongst the humanity of all of mankind and saying, I want you, then you in faith respond to him and confess your sin and turn to Christ and ask for the forgiveness of sin that you can become a child of God to those who believe in his name. These men had the opportunity to respond to truth and their hearts were enraged. But Stephen was filled with the Spirit and he continued to exemplify a Christ-like behavior. He was filled with joy. He was filled with peace. He was filled with love and he was filled with self-control. They were blind and he could see. They were blind and he could see. 
Notice that in verse 53, man, I mean 55. It says, but being filled of the Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What a beautiful picture God gave him, a glimpse of heaven. There were only a handful of people in all of human history that got a glimpse of heaven. Could you imagine that? What a beautiful thing as he was staring up into heaven. The Bible says we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. To keep our eyes on him through the daily grind and circumstances of life. To look at the finish line and don't look back and to keep our eyes. And he gazed intently into heaven and he saw Jesus and God allowed him to be seen standing. Meaning, as he was saying, sitting at the right hand, standing at the right hand of God. The Bible pictures Jesus in many cases as sitting at the right hand of God. His redemptive work is finished. And now he stands and he welcomes Stephen into his presence. And what he saw, nobody else could see because they were blinded by sin, and sin is exactly that. The contrast between death and life. Notice that Stephen said, but they, he said to him, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, the Son of Man, that statement was an indictment because the high priest had asked Jesus. He asked Jesus, are you the Son of Man? And he said, I am the Son of Man. The title that was given to the Messiah. And it says, because he said that, they were filled with anger and rage again. They asked him, are you the Savior of the world? And he said, I am the Son of Man. You know, many people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you haven't read the Bible. You're kidding me. Jesus claimed to be the Savior of the world over and over and over and over and over again. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. Before Abraham existed, I am. They picked up stones to kill him, claiming to be equal with God. He is God. He claimed to be God. He knows who He is. And He identified Himself as the Son of Man. And that indictment right there went back to the trial when they killed Him for claiming to be God. He was put to death for telling the truth. He said, they're a Son of Man. And notice that. But they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed upon Him with an impulse. Man, they didn't want to hear the truth anymore. They couldn't handle the truth. Instead of being broken and humbled by the truth and turning to God for forgiveness, oh my God, we killed Jesus. Forgive us. They wanted to shut Him up like they shut Jesus up. It says they were controlled by demons. It's the same word that's used of that big herd of swine that were controlled by demons that rushed out into the sea and killed themselves. They didn't want to hear it anymore. There was a difference between death and life. And notice this, I love this. It says, but they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears. They rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Oh, we're going to talk so much about this guy. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Death and life, hate and love. Isn't that beautiful? Stephen knew that as he saw Jesus, he knew the moment that he died, he would be in the presence of the Lord. He was welcoming him into his, his presence. Let me just tell you something. There is no intermediate step. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as limbo. There is no such thing as stop before you go. And I, I know we laugh about this, but you know what? It's a truth that people are taught and they believe it and it's wrong. Paul said, absent from my body, I'll be present with the Lord. Stephen said, the moment that I leave this life, I will be in the presence of Jesus. I see him standing at the right hand of God, welcoming me into his presence. There was no middle ground, there was no place to stop. 
It's by grace we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves. You can't work your way into heaven once you die. You can't pray somebody else into heaven. You can't light candles for them. You can't buy cards for them. You can't do good works for them. You can't do nothing for them because it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. Okay? When Stephen died, he realized his life in the presence of God would continue. Jesus said it to the thief on the cross, Today you shall be with me in paradise. It is so clear, we must make sure that we're not confused by the nonsense of the lies that are out there today. If you have come to faith in Christ, know with certainty, absent from your body, you'll be present with the Lord. Period. The difference between hate and love. They hated Him. But he loved them. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine? Only the Spirit of God controlling a man's heart who's being so, so, so unjustly persecuted can cry out to God, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In life and death, Stephen was so much like Jesus. Jesus was filled with the Spirit, so was Stephen. Jesus was full of grace, so was Stephen. Jesus boldly confronted the religious establishment of his day who taught error instead of truth, and so did Stephen. Jesus was convicted by lying witnesses, and so was Stephen. Jesus had a mock trial, so did Stephen. Jesus was executed, though innocent of any crime, and so was Stephen. Both were accused of blasphemy, both died outside the city and were buried by sympathizers. And as we already noted, both prayed for the salvation of their executioners. The question as I studied these two chapters was, was there ever a man more like Jesus than Stephen? And in closing, I just have one last question that I ask of myself. And that is this. Stephen was just like Jesus. Are you? And am I? Father, we just love you for your word. We love you for the truth that it reveals the sin in our hearts and our need for forgiveness. God, I just pray as uh, we've been convicted by sin and confronted by it, I just pray that for those who don't know of their relationship with you or may mistakenly believe that because they belong to a church or because their family does or whatever their history is, that somehow that's good enough. That you would convict their heart of their need to recognize their sin, to repent, turn from sin and turn to God, and to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And that they would do it today, for today is the day of the Spirit. That they don't harden their hearts and maybe never have another opportunity, but they take advantage of the grace that's offered. God, we just thank you for your word and for the example of this man by the name of Stephanus, Stephen, the victor's crown that he earned and was placed on his head because he was faithful in life and faithful unto death. God, may we become men who are like him, servant leaders, who are a witness in both our life and our lips, who are used by God to help judge the world of sin and who are willing to lay down our life for the truth, men of principle, men of character, men of conviction. That we'd be men of faith as we see in the... New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, men of faith who are obedient in spite of the earthly consequences, who, like Jim Elliot, are men who lived by the truth 
Why should we hang on to that which we cannot hold only to be able to have that which we can never lose? God, may we not be fools. May we seek the eternal and not the temporal. And God, use us to draw people to Christ. And we just ask this in His name. Amen.